Welcome to the Café con Therapy podcast, episode one. Today, our guest is Dundee Gehilde. He is a child and adolescent therapist, received his master's in clinical mental health counseling from Northeastern Illinois University. He is a veteran from the United States Air Force and is a children's book author. Today, he will share from his experience as a therapist, but also about his own mental health journey. Hi. Hi. Well, how are you doing? Good, good. It's cold outside. It is very cold outside. Yeah. And you're working from home still, right? Yep, yep. Still working from home. Um, Except on Sundays. So on Sundays, I go into the, uh, it's like a partial hospitalization program. I do PRN work for, Mm -hmm. um, so I'll have to go in tomorrow. So what is that like? Uh, the hospitalization program. Mm-hmm. So it's a PHP. So it's like, um, you know, it stands for partial hospitalization program. And basically patients go in uh, seven days a week. They might have like a uh, four week treatment or a two week treatment, depending on how the severity of their uh, their presenting issues are. Um, So we'll see these patients, um, again, seven days a week. I only go in seven or on Sundays and we teach uh, skills. So it's a therapeutic skills-based group. So the skills that I teach are DBT, mindfulness, um, healthy relationships, community building and sometimes relapse prevention. But I mean, it's 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 different kind of work because it's not process work. So we're basically uh, providing psychoeducation to a group of like up to eight to 10 people at a time. Oh, okay. Yeah, but it could be difficult though because a lot of our patients who attend or who are with the program, they struggle with a lot of mood and anxiety disorders. So we'll see some patients who are um, severely depressed or severely anxious. So sometimes patients don't engage because they're severely depressed or severely anxious. But the way I practice is that if they're there and if they're um, sitting in the room present, then that's enough participation for, for at least in my clinical perspective that means that they're participating somehow i think that's always interesting when you're doing psycho ed mm-hmm. with a very specific group right and so you were talking about dbt and this is a re-recording because okay, the first yeah. time no worries didn't work um but like what are your thoughts about dbt like what do you like about it or do you feel like you identify better with it or is there a specific sort of theory counseling theory that you, that you feel more comfortable with? 
You know, it's interesting because I'm more Rogerian person-centered, but prior to working um, at my internship site, you know, I didn't, I didn't realize how much DBT I utilize anyhow. So within like the umbrella of DBT, dialectical behavior therapy, you know, I, I, I always advocate for clients to utilize coping skills like breathing, um, counting, deep breathing techniques, even meditation. And I even utilize that within my own self-care practice, um, just breathing, meditation. Um, I've been doing yoga, um, not recently, but in the past I've done yoga. Um, and realizing that, you know, uh, during my internship site that I already use DBT skills, um, coping skills, distress tolerance skills. So for me, um, incorporating that within therapy, even just within my uh, clients, my individual caseload, um, providing DBT skills. Sometimes I'm just not aware that I'm utilizing uh, DBT skills within my practice until I'm writing a case note and I'm saying, oh yeah, I'm us using um, so-and-so or coping skills uh, to help regulate clients' emotions. Um, so I'm actively utilizing DBT within my sessions, but not really realizing it um, until after the fact. So I feel like um, DBT, because I'm so like, uh, I wouldn't say privy, but I, I'm actively using DBT within my own life. Um, but I don't call it DBT, obviously. I call it coping skills or distress tolerance skills or just regulating my own emotions because I'm actively utilizing that on a day-to-day -day basis. I, I, forget to, I forget that I'm using it actively within a session, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course. And I think one of the things that I have always talked about is that, I mean, I don't know your experience during our program, but there are a lot of people that would say that um, you shouldn't be eclectic, mm -hmm. that you should sort of stick with one theory and kind of go with it. And if it's, you know, and if you truly know how to use a theory, you should be able to apply it with everyone. Mm -hmm. And I've always felt like that's such a cop out yeah. because every situation and every person is different. And like, my under if my understanding, you know, is right. Well, more like if I remember it correctly, there's a lot of mindfulness work in DBT, mm -hmm. right? Yep, yep. And for me, mindfulness has always been something I've struggled with personally. Mm -hmm. So for me, like, if I were to say I'm going to really use DBT in my work, but at the same time, I myself don't really do mindfulness. Like, I don't really fully commit with it. Mm -hmm. Like, it, I don't know, it, it just makes me feel like it shouldn't be a one-size-fits-all mm -hmm, mm -hmm. type of situation. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. Well, at least that was my experience with grad school. So that's the one thing I've always sort of been against. And there were plenty of professors who would talk about it. And I was like, I don't, I don't agree. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, I agree with you. I feel like every client is different. And I find myself... Um, just with any uh, clients or patient I'm in contact with, uh, pulling 
theories from various uh, modalities, um, you know, and actively, you know, saying like in my head as I'm providing a session or providing a psychoeducation, like, oh, this will work for this particular patient or client, or this might work for this type of situation. So then I'll use that intervention or suggest an intervention within, um, you know, within the moment of realizing like this might work. So. Right. Yeah. And I think that's kind of how it should be. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I just go back to our program and think about all the people saying, well, if it works, right. then you should be able to apply it with everyone. I was like, no, I don't. I don't agree. <laughs> and, and, but, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say, um, on the flip side of things, like providing a DBT psychoeducation group, which is geared towards DBT, um, I realized that sometimes in the moments, especially within the milieu setting, um, within the group setting, um, I find myself thinking, oh, this intervention might work for this particular patient, um, but I'm not going to provide that intervention within a group setting. It might suggest an intervention be utilized within individual sessions for this patient. Um, so I think it, uh, like during a group setting, um, if, you're if I'm providing psychoeducation in a group setting, I rarely, um, I wouldn't say never, but I rarely pull and use other theories uh, if, even if I find it beneficial within that moment. I might suggest it to their individual therapist to utilize, or this might work with this particular patient, or I might, you know, send an email to their individual therapist and say, you know, um, I think this might work for this particular patient um, as far as like different modalities within a group setting goes. Mm -hmm. No, I would completely agree. And I think that's also been my experience. Uh, not currently, uh, because currently I don't run any psychoeducation groups. The group I run is mainly um, a support group mm -hmm. from people within the program. But for my internship, I used, I used to do a CBT group. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was with clients who were not necessarily my own as well. So I think I maybe had two clients that I was seeing individually, but then the other clients were from other clinicians. And when you're in the group setting, like you're kind of focused on just helping them develop, develop the tools from the modality you're trying to use. Mm -hmm. But then you are also able to identify it's like, oh, you know what? I saw this person react uh, this way with a certain topic and you know this reaction kind of made me think that this certain technique or modality might be good for them to try yeah exactly um, in their individual session mm -hmm. yeah because it's hard to focus on the one thing with the one client in a group right, setting right yeah so i think that's the great thing about psycho ed groups that you know you're basically learning skills mm -hmm. and you might not use all of them but at least you have a better understanding about what it is they do and why they can work. Right, right. And for some, I feel like um, for some of the patients that I've had within the group setting, I, I sort of like come to this like, uh, I guess, aha moment, but like um, this realization of, 
you know, some clients can benefit from psychoeducation, uh, more specifically in this case, in, in the case that I work for the clients that I work for. Um, some some of these clients or patients might benefit from starting off with psychoeducation for specific skills before they enter into an individual therapy, um, I guess, regimen or program um, to help help them ground uh, themselves or regulate their emotions before getting into the heavy processing um, individual counseling. Oh, I wholeheartedly agree because I think a lot of people might not be ready to do or start off with only processing Mm -hmm. and it's better for them to see a certain skill and then figure out where they can apply it themselves. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I think that's a really good observation. And, and yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Mm-hmm. So did you have this experience as well when you were doing your internship? Um, because your internship was at Center on Halstead. Right, right. So at, in, at Center on Halstead, I um, mainly had individual clients, but I was able to run one process group um, during my experience at Center and Halstead. So I didn't really get uh, any hands-on experience with providing psychoeducation um, in a group setting. Although um, with my individual clients, I found myself um, conducting uh, meditation skills within the session or deep breathing skills within the session um, and realizing uh during supervision and or consultation with my peers that, you know, all along I've been doing DBT within the session. I feel like during internship, um, I was utilizing a lot of skills that were taught um, within like the grad school program or within just my own mindfulness practice, uh, utilizing those skills within the session and not really being able to put a name to that until like I was provided that kind of education within the internship or until I was validated about utilizing a specific skill within like my supervision between me and my supervisor and and my supervisor saying, oh, that's a good utilization of, you know, that kind of skill. And then me realizing, yeah, I've been doing that all along. Um, So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that's the great thing about internship as well. Like, you begin to do mm-hmm. the work, and you're kind of learning your own sort of, let's call it group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the thing is, you don't get, like, truly, truly validated until, you know, you're doing the work in the field right. and no longer just an in mm-hmm. internship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I feel like during internship, like, I was such a novice, you know, and and it's almost like letting – uh, a child out into the world for the first time and utilizing the skills that they were taught, um, you know, by their parents, like where in our case, we, the skills that we were taught by our professors or just our peers. And then we were released into this like um, su- supported and supervised world. Um, but we're kind of like these, uh, you know, uh, in reality, not reality, but like, Metaphorically, like we're kind of like these adolescents within the field, um, sort of say. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And 
because we didn't really know if what we were going to do was right. Exactly. Uh huh. So we're just released with all these skills, like, and trying to hone in on our own specific skills while utilizing skills that we've been learning throughout the grad program. Um, kind of like X-Men, you know, <laughs> um, mutants who have these abilities that need to be trained on how to use and like control these abilities, sort of say. But as therapists, utilizing these skills and you and learning to um, control and not really control, but utilize these skills within, I guess, a session with your client to better serve them. I love the analogy of the exit. I was like, I wasn't planning on bringing my nerd side into this, but great. I'm so happy that you mentioned it. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Because, you know, we learn these skills, like in Mm -hmm. theory, but putting them into practice is a completely different experience in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what it was like for you, but for me, like, I took so long to finally just give in and actually start doing therapy during internship. So like I spent the entire first month just like, you know what, just let me do this training. Just let me do that training and just back and forth. And then finally, like at the end of September, my supervisor like, you know, you have to start seeing clients, right? I was like, I know, but I'm scared. It's intimidating. (laughs) It is because, you know, and, and this isn't the job, but, you know, when you're first starting, at least for me, it's like you're going in with this perception that you have to help fix mm-hmm. people's problems. And that is such a huge, like, responsibility to throw right, on yourself. Right. And and that's not our job yeah. at all. So mm-hmm. at least that's that's how difficult it was for me. Like, I don't know what it was like for you if you were, like, ready to jump in the minute your internship started. or well, We were kind of just... Yeah, we were kind of just thrown into it. You know, I feel like the second week we were there, they just started giving us clients, no ifs, ands, or buts. It's like, you guys are going to get clients your second week. And, you know, um, everyone's going to get a set amount. And then we're going to continue to give you referrals. Um, Because at Center on Hallstead, I feel like there's just this wait list for clients to be seen. Um, so we were, we jumped right in. Um, <laughs> and for, I guess there was, for me, there was no time for me to be like, oh man, you know, how do I, how do I get into this when you're literally just given clients, um, the second week that you're there. So I feel like I wasn't, I feel like I was prepared, but I, I, I don't think I was ready, um, to, you know, get thrown in like that. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, I feel like in retrospect, I would have preferred that, like for them to be like, okay, that's it. Yeah. Here you go. You did one week of training. Here are yeah. your clients. Um, but it's, it's I, I kind yeah. of learned my lesson. It's kind of like when parents teach their kids to swim. Sometimes you hear them hear stories of parents just throwing their kid in the pool and, you know. <laughs> and, and letting yeah. them figure mm-hmm. it out. <laughs> Which is a terrible yeah. thing to do. But yeah. Um, So you were talking to me a little bit about how you use mindfulness as your own Mm -hmm. coping skills. So what other coping skills do you feel are useful for you? For me, yep. Aside from mindfulness, I would say um, exercising. Absolutely. I exercise five days a week. I try to. Um, 
And I guess exercising and physical activity is a mindfulness practice within itself. So other than mindfulness and meditation and breathing, I would say um, playing video games is, is a big thing for me. I love playing video games. Um, I play them every day after work, you know, and that's just a good way to keep me busy. And it's a lot of fun. I've been playing video games since I was a kid. So that's a big coping skill that I utilize to, to de-stress after a day of work or even just to, you know, have fun <laughs> when I, when you can't meet friends, you know, or can't go outside during a pandemic, playing video games and connecting with people within the gaming community is a fun way for me to stay socially um, integrated, I guess. Right. And I think there must be something comforting as well. Like if it's something that you've been doing since mm -hmm. you were young. So it's like this consistent thing that you can keep with you and kind of, I guess in a way is also grounding to yeah. some extent. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes, you know, I, I, I watch YouTube videos of old um, video games like Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, you know, and I'm like getting emotional, re remembering what it was like to play that game as a child, you know. Um, getting yeah. nostalgic yeah. mm -hmm. yes yeah um and is there any specific video games that you really like now or that were your favorite growing up besides yeah, Legend of right Zelda? now i'm playing um a game called league of legends uh, i'm not sure if you've heard of it it's kind of like I dota I'm, i've never played dota but i hear it's like a ripoff from dota um but i'm currently playing that um I'm also playing the Switch. I have uh, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, which I'm almost finished with, but have not finished. Um, it's just so much fun to play. Um, and, you know, I'm planning to get a PS5 when it's more readily available for and accessible for people <laughs> and not having to, you know, look for availability online. So I'm just waiting for that to come out. Uh, within stores to personally get. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, I've only heard of these games. I'm mm. not a gamer myself. I am, I was like, in real life, mm. I'm a klutz. And when it comes to video games, like, I'm also a <laughs> yeah. klutz. <laughs> I can't make my characters yeah. walk straight. Mm -hmm. so <laughs> I am terrible at, you know, video games. But for me, like, the one nostalgic video game, I guess, for me would be, um, Oh, Sonic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like I never myself owned the game, but um, my cousin who lived next door to me, like she, mm -hmm. she owned it. And so I would every once in a while get to go and just try to play. I mean, I was rubbish at it <laughs> back then too, but <laughs> it, you know, it's something nostalgic about Sonic itself. Like I used to watch Sonic, the cartoon, like, mm -hmm. you know, on the weekends was it Saturday mornings. So there's something quite comforting about just, you know, yeah that character sure. yeah and so um i kind of want to go over the topic of sure. your books as well um because you are now an established mm -hmm. writer <laughs> with three books under your belt um so i was hoping that you could talk a little bit about sure, your books. yeah um so the first book which was called uh which is called my friend has autism but he's no different from me um is inspired by my time working as an instructional teacher's aide at a, a school for children with autism, um, which I've 
worked at um, maybe about six years ago, maybe seven years ago. Um, I had just finished my undergrad um, at UIC and I was working on my first master's in psychology, general psychology. And, um, you know, I was trying to find a way to get into the social services field and this position was open. So I applied and I got the position and I had nothing or no uh, knowledge or experience with working with anyone who had a disability, let alone a child with autism. Um, so, you know, I, essentially I was a paraprofessional and, um, you know, I was pretty intimidated on my first day, maybe even my first week with working with children with autism. It was a different world for me. Um, we had to utilize different language, you know, um, my patience was tested and um, I was actually inspired by the children I worked with uh, because they were just so amazing. Um, just everything about the students that I worked with. And I realized that um, while working with these children who were who had autism, that they were so intelligent and so smart um, and exceeded the expectations that I had within my own bias or psyche prior to working with children with autism that um, I realized that individuals and children living with autism were no different from me. They, you know, some children uh, who I worked with just needed more time and understanding to get where they wanted to go. And they, again, they exceeded the expectations that I had um, going into the field, um, exceeded and rised above. So, uh, you know, I was inspired to write this children's book to help individuals, especially other children who might identify as quote unquote typical um, children who may not have a disability. Um, it was uh, meant for other children to read and sort of, uh, I guess, integrate themselves um, or become advocates for children with autism. Because um, again, I, I when I was growing up, I didn't, I was uh, had not come into contact with anyone who had a disability. Um, but if I was at a grocery store with my parents, or if I was, you know, at the mall with my parents and I, you know, had seen someone or a different, or a family um, from across the store who had a child with disability, I didn't understand it as a kid. And I was also almost intimidated, um, but also, you know, uh, just a little afraid to um, interact with someone at the grocery store, not that I would interact with a stranger at the grocery store, but just even walk by someone who had a disability because I was afraid of being in contact with that person because I didn't know um, what a tantrum was or I didn't know, you know, what autism was as a child. So writing this book was with the intention of increasing advocacy for children with autism, um, but also just to normalize autism for other kids who might not know what autism is. Um, so it's just to increase advocacy for children with autism and anyone who might identify with a disability. Um, so that's the first book. <laughs> 
Um, and I think it's so important, like what you're talking about and me, you know, we've talked about this before. I was also a para, so I can also really understand where you're coming from and how it's so different once you're working with people with disabilities or, you know, mm-hmm. specifically with autism and then sort of your idea and perception of people mm-hmm. with autism or with, you know, any learnative or cognitive disability, um, you know, just in general, like before right. being in the field, like it's such a different mm-hmm. perspective and you do get such a better understanding once you're working with them. And I think it also develops so much more compassion. Right. As well right. And, and um, yeah, you're absolutely right. And again, it's, it's uh, like individuals with disability, people with disabilities um, are not represented within the mainstream culture. So growing up as a kid, we, we I rarely saw uh, anything in the media about people with disabilities or movies with representation um, that represented people with disabilities. So I didn't know, um, you know, growing up, anyone who had a disability or even, uh, you know, I guess, uh, watched anyone on TV who had a disability. So going into the field, I was kind of blindfolded in how to interact with anyone with disabilities, but realizing that, you, you know, you don't have to have a set of tools to interact with anyone who has a disability because they're just like us. People with disabilities are just like us. They're no different from me um, or you. They're people um, with the same goals, same aspirations, same set of skills, same um, cognitive um, uh, consciousness. Um, so again, writing that book was just to really normalize and help increase ad- advocacy uh, and integration for people with disability. Yeah, and I think it's so important too, specifically in the context of how you wrote it. So yes, it is mainly geared towards children, which I think is super important because if we can get children getting a better understanding of, mm-hmm. you know, what autism is, you mm-hmm. know, when they're really young, then they'll be able to to see, you know, people with autism later on, like right. with a lot more compassion, yeah. with a lot more empathy, but just overall mm-hmm. so much mm-hmm. more understanding. But the thing about the book is that anybody can read it and anybody can get a sense of, you know, right. what autism is. So like I said, it is geared towards children, but I think it's just a great Thanks. book in general. <laughs> Yeah. And so so that's your first book. So then let's move sure. on to your second book. Sure. Um the second book that I wrote was uh is I am me POC. And th- this book was inspired by just growing up as a person of color um uh feeling othered, uh feeling like I was less than a person who identifies as white or within the mainstream culture. Because again, there's no representation for people of color within the media. Um, There was no representation for people of color within the media. I mean, if there was representation, the person of color on a TV show was was rarely the main character. Um, You think about Power Rangers, the main character was either the Red Ranger or the Green Ranger. You know, the Black Ranger, who was an African-American or a Black man, um, he was the, the he wasn't, the, he, he was, 
uh, I would say he was a main character, but he wasn't the main protagonist on the TV show. Um, you know, so there were no um, Asian American representation within the media as well. And again, if there was, they were not the main protagonist. So um, writing the book, I Am Me POC, is showing representation as a person of color um, to really represent children of color in a way that says to others, you know, we can achieve uh, high credential within society. We can be whoever we want with, within society, um, more specifically within American society. And giving that representation for children of color to really inspire them and empower them to become who they want to become um, and inform others who might not identify as a, a person of color to inform them that, you know, again, people of color are no different from them. Uh, they are no different from the white culture uh, and, you know, the book is really disseminating information to just everyone in the community to say that people of color are no different from white people or white culture uh, in that, you know, they can achieve high status. They can achieve a high credential. They can achieve whatever they would like to achieve. Um, and they are not less than uh, individuals who identify within the mainstream culture, but also it's to empower uh, children of color to encourage them to become who they want to be. So, so would you say that this is a book that you would have liked to have been able to read? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't remember reading uh, children's books as a kid that showed representation for um, differences in general. I might have read. Um, one or two, but I can't re really recall a book that that identified, um, you know, differences, uh, people of color. Um, yeah, I can't think of any outstanding books uh, that that represented marginalized communities as a kid. Yeah, I would say that probably you know, during the time that we were growing up, I don't think there was much literature out there mm -hmm. specifically for children, um, you know, sort of focusing on what right. it is to be right. a person of color. And so we were talking about how um, your first book tied into your experience working with um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. kids with autism. So how does this book relate to um, your life? The first or second book? The second book. The yeah, second it book. relates to, to uh, my life in many ways. Uh, I've come into contact with uh, friends uh, or just strangers who um, aren't aware of microaggressions uh, and use pejorative language to identify me or to, um, to describe me. Um, you know, e even growing up as a kid, uh, I was, I've been called uh, Chinese chink, um, you know, uh, minority even, you know, uh, even, even now you know, people identify me as a minority. So the book is also meant to uh, educate others uh, to utilize non-pejorative language, language when identifying people who 
uh, are people of color or people within marginalized communities um, to sort of not or to uh, increase that sort of language of using um, non-pejorative terms to describe people of color, um, people within marginalized communities. So it relates to me in a way that, you know, um, I would like to see a change uh, in my current world. Um, so in, in, in terms of uh, marginalized communities, that is. So um, it, it means a lot to me because I work in a field that uh, right now that serves uh, people of color, um, foster families with children of color. So I would just like to see um, an increase in integrated inclusion for people of color within the mainstream culture. Um, so, how how do you feel this also applies to you as a therapist of color in a you know predominantly still white field? Yeah. Um, so I think it's important for individuals working in our field to increase their cultural competence, um, more specifically for, um, for the clients they serve and for the staff who they might work with. Um, so I think individuals who are white within the field um, can really benefit with increasing their cultural competence to better serve the community that they work for um, or to better uh, work with individuals who identify within diverse culture. Um, I think increasing the knowledge of how to interact with a person of color or how to interact with um, individuals with a mar within marginalized communities is important because it, I feel like when we utilize uh, non-pejorative terms, um, it decreases the likelihood of uh, microaggressions within the work field, which increases the likelihood of a better working environment for not just the mainstream culture within the professional field, but also for people of color within our field. Um, and when you increase the, you know, the working, the, the positivity within the working environment, it overall affects the community that we work for, the communities that we work for. And, you know, now that we are sort of in the topic of, you know, the therapy world and underserved communities, what is your opinion about the whole stigma against therapy in, I don't <laughs> want to call it minority communities and mm -hmm. communities for, of people yeah, of color. Uh, this, there's a huge stigma for black and brown communities um, toward mental health services. Um, growing up in a Christ, or Catholic, um, brown, Filipino culture uh, who was just so conservative um, and really believed in... Um, you know, religion as the uh, the uh, I guess the what's the term that I'm looking for? Religion as the saving grace for mental health. 
you know, or just for anything, it's the saving grace for anything, any issue or problem. Um, there's a stigma towards uh, seeking outside resources such as uh, a therapist or a doctor to treat um, pathological um mindset within the family setting. I feel like growing up as a child of color um, within a Filipino family, uh, mental health services was not talked about. Um, if I had a problem, you know, I never talked about it. It was just sort of swept under the rug. Um, if I had an issue with my, you know, parents, I couldn't say it because they were always right and I was always wrong. Um, struggling with my identity growing up as a kid, you know, I knew I was gay and I didn't talk about it. Um, and I thought I could suppress my identity because if I talked about it, you know, I was afraid that my parents would just send me to church or pray, ask me to pray it away um, rather than processing it within a therapeutic setting. Um, and I feel like that's pretty consistent throughout uh, black and brown communities where mental health services are not, uh, talked about or even accessible in the communities that we serve. Um, so yeah, I think that stigma is still very prevalent and uh, just heavy. <laughs> and it's, I guess it's uh, just really unfortunate for the clients of color who suffer with uh, pathological issues, so. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And again, me coming from a Catholic Mexican household, um, I so firsthand know how the stigma against mental health and seeking therapy, um, you know, can can be, uh, mm -hmm. how would you say this, mm -hmm. harmful to some extent, you know, because I mean, I don't know for you, but for me, it's like, I, I genuinely wish I would have been started yeah, at therapy same. when I was very young and, you know, not definitely not blaming my parents for not taking me, you know, it was their belief that, you know, no, no stranger can right, help right. me with what I'm going through. And also being mm -hmm. a very resilient child, like, you know, I also wasn't exhibiting anything. So, you know, but, but, one of the things I always tell people now is like, look, you don't need to wait for there to be a problem, for there to be mm -hmm. some sort of trauma mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. get your children started with therapy. Because there are so many benefits that you can get out of it just simply by being right. able to talk about right. a difficult experience or, you know, life transitions right. or, you know, just stuff in general. But, you know, that stigma is still pretty strong within, let's say, you know, communities of color but i think also within yeah. you know christian communities as well who are very devoted to yeah like you said just pray it away or just right. talk to god or talk to your priest and it'll right it's almost like taboo though right yeah. it's like it's taboo to want to talk about your problems if you can't deal with it by yourself that means you know they're within that uh narrative of stigma towards mental health it's like within our communities our black and brown communities it's like if you can't resolve it on your own there must be something wrong with you and that perpetuates you know a cycle of like i'm not going to go to therapy because if i go there must be something wrong with me 
when in reality, it's like if if you do go to therapy, mm -hmm. you know, that shows more strength than trying to, you know, uh, trying to resolve it yourself if you don't have the tools to. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because again, if we could deal with our own problems by ourselves, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then there would be no need for therapists. But that's not the case. Sometimes we really need just some outside perspective to help right, us gain right. those tools, like you were saying. Because when you're in it, and this is one of the things I talk about with most of my clients, um, you know, and when they're in an abusive relationship, when you're in the thick of it, mm -hmm, you don't really mm -hmm. identify the things happening. Because it's like you're holding, like, Mm -hmm. let's say your hand straight to your face like things are kind of blurry you don't get a sense of the bigger picture you kind of you know mm -hmm. move your hand away from your face and you're able to identify the lines and able to identify right. and look at everything as a whole so yeah no I I completely agree um and so and I think this is gonna be mm -hmm. a good tie-in for your last book but what was it like growing up and having yeah, so it was there was identity. a huge struggle with with identity. Um, again, living in a in a in a fam with a family who is heavily conservative. You know, I knew I was gay. Five years old, you know, when I was a kid, I would chase boys around trying to kiss them. You know, and so I knew I was gay at a young age, but I was in the closet because you know, in in my family. You had to be a man within Filipino culture. There's just, and I, you might heard of the term, but um, it's heavily used within Hispanic culture. Machismo. You have to be a man. You have to be. Uh, mm -hmm. You have to marry a woman. You know. And I grew up in, uh, in a community where the machismo term was taken seriously. It's like. All my friends were dating uh, girls at a young age, um, and even into my teenage years, uh, my friends had girlfriends. So I wanted that too. I wanted to be quote unquote straight. I didn't know there was, you know, a huge gay community in in the state of Illinois within uh, Chicago. Um, and talking about being gay uh, was, or even just presenting yourself as flamboyant, which I was as a kid. Um, there was a huge stigma against, um, I would be made fun of, uh, if I was too flamboyant by my cousins, you know, my cousins would make fun of me for being too girly. Um, you know, so I tried to be a straight person, quote unquote, straight person. I would act, uh, uh, super masculine, you know, I would over masculinize myself. Um, I don't know if that's a word or not, but I would try to be as straight as possible. I would even date girls just to not get questioned by my family or friends. Um, so that really uh, created some pathological issues for me. I struggled with depression. I struggled with an identity crisis. Um, I even went as far as joining the military to try to convert myself to be straight. I thought it would be some sort of conversion therapy where after boot camp, I would be um, super straight, but that wasn't the case. Um, I was still struggling with my identity after boot camp. Um, I was still gay. Um, so it, it was, it really took until I started accepting myself for who I was, um, where I started to embrace my, uh, my identity um, and started 
slowly coming out of the closet well into my uh, mid-20s. Um, so coming to self-acceptance and this sort of love for my identity and self, um, it really inspired me to write a book um, to help children uh, to embrace their identity at a young age. So this, the new book, A Simple uh, Way on How to Be, tries to normalize um, other identity other than straight, um, cis, female, male. You know, it really is affirmative toward other identities such as trans identity, gay identity, lesbian identity, bi identity, um, to really help kids um, accept themselves. So this is an LGBTQIA affirmative children's book to hopefully increase acceptance for kids who might not identify within the mainstream culture. Um, so my own experience with trying to love myself at a young age, trying to get to there, uh, to that uh, full acceptance of self-identity has really inspired me to write this for kids who are currently struggling with their identity. So. Yeah, and I think it's such an important thing, too. And I think this ties in so well with what we were commenting about the previous books. Like, these are things that children, at least from mm -hmm. our generation, mm -hmm. weren't taught. But it's something so important that yeah. should be taught from a very young age in order to avoid all of these sort of identity Absolutely. relational right. issues later right. on. And would you say, like, now that you're in the field, that there are specific either barriers or struggles that you face yeah, as totally. a gay therapist? Um, I would say so. I feel like even now in my full-time job, um, you know, working with black and brown families, you know, I, I do have to hide my identity um, because I don't know how they would uh, react if they knew I was gay. Um, so I do... Uh, go in to working with families who I've just met. Um, even in the workplace setting, uh, I, I just present myself um, as masculine so that I am not questioned. Um, and I do get, uh, you know, I, uh, even within um, uh, the workplace, I do get microaggress for being, um, you know, too flamboyant or, uh, gay presenting. So I, I, I think there is, that struggle is still there. And I don't think the world is ready for an all-inclusive um, uh, way of thinking. And I wish it was um, because I wouldn't have to <laughs> hide, I guess, um, in the closet in a workplace setting. So that struggle still exists. Yeah, and I can imagine why that's also uncomfortable as well, because you never know, like, if the family you're working with is going to have something against you or, you know, mm -hmm. just be inappropriate in any way. So, and that'll yeah, obviously take absolutely. away from the therapeutic relationship. So, and have you found any other struggles um, while now being mm -hmm. in the field? Mm -hmm. What are we, two years out, two and a half? Just in general? Um, just in general, I feel like I can balance myself, uh, within work. 
the, the most that I've struggled with is um, letting go of uh, of a day after uh, a day's worth of work after the workday is over. Um, I feel like, especially within the partial hospitalization program, it's it can sometimes be hard to come home and just relax. Um, after a day's worth of providing psychoeducation to individuals who are severely struggling with depression. Um, it's hard to let that go. Sometimes I do find myself um, getting drained uh, when you're in a group of patients who are severely struggling with personal issues such as severe depression, suicide ideation. Um, and are actively talking about suicidal ideation within session, a group setting. So coming home after a day of working at the partial hospitalization program, it can be tough to go back to baseline. Sometimes I just need an hour or two of just, you know, um, sitting down or having a cup of coffee and just processing the day before I move on from the day. So I think that, that, that's that's a struggle that I um, try to cope with uh, every now and then after working at the partial hospitalization program. Yeah, and I would say that's something that mm -hmm. I feel a lot of therapists go through. And it's just that simple idea of boundaries of, mm -hmm. you know what, I'm leaving work at work. When I get home, um, it's going to be just my life and not thinking about clients and paperwork and stuff but in and of itself yeah, it's so totally. difficult Especially to actually be able now to working it. from home i know we talked about this in the past but working from home is a struggle as well because you, like you said trying to leave work at work um, and separate work from home but when you're working from home it's like work is at home now so it's it's tough to separate that when your work what when you're always bringing your work home because it's always at home <laughs> Yeah, it, it becomes difficult mm -hmm. yeah. because there's a blur in the line of between, you know, both aspects of your life. And and I think that in, in and of itself is, you know, yep. leading to mm -hmm. you being able to get drained a lot easier. Yeah. Because let's be honest, this job in and of itself is draining. Like you're kind of taking on the weight mm -hmm. of what your clients are telling you. Mm -hmm. And as much as you want to, you want to shake it off but mm -hmm. you can't entirely. So you end up carrying that with you. So yeah. being able to establish yeah. those boundaries is just so important. But yeah, this pandemic mm -hmm. has made it a little bit Which more difficult. Which is why coping skills are very beneficial <laughs> throughout this time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and I know like the whole idea as well. And I, I think you and I talked about this last time too, but the whole idea of, therapists mainly go mm -hmm. through mm -hmm. so much imposter syndrome and it's like I think specifically mm -hmm. during COVID oh. it's been so much more prevalent because like most of us you know who have more than a year experience you know at this mm -hmm. point you and I are both two and a half years out but just in general just after a year of experience like yeah. you feel like you're getting into the the swing of things and you're learning how to do your job and then all of a sudden you're hit with, oh, now there's a pandemic. So not only do you have to focus on the aspect of your work. So like for you, it was eating disorders and mm -hmm. um, right, right. 
the foster children, right? Mm -hmm. For me, it was specifically domestic violence, but now this pandemic is impacting clients' lives and it's also impacting our life. And so you're like, I'm struggling to figure out how to do it myself. Right. How am this I going to help somebody else figure this out? definitely added a few layers to, to presenting problems and issues for not just our clients, but for us. You yeah. know, sometimes I, I'm walking back to my car and thinking to myself, like, damn, did I, did I provide, you know, the right kind of <laughs> intervention within the group? You know, and like you question yourself. You were talking about imposter syndrome. And it's like, it's interesting, two and a half years outside of grad school, you're still, or I'm still questioning you know, um, my own set of uh, efficacy within within the uh, field that we work in. <laughs> oh, no, trust me, I am too. <laughs> it's me like on a weekly basis. But I think it's, I think it's important yeah. to also like figure out what that means as well, because it means like we still have empathy, like we're still trying to make yeah. sure that we're doing a good job and not just taking it for granted. Because I think I'd be more concerned if a therapist mm-hmm. came up to me like, oh, yeah, I know exactly what I'm doing. I'd be like, mm, <laughs> I don't I don't know that I trust. That. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's for me, at least what helps me like specifically after a week of mm-hmm. am I doing this mm-hmm. right? Did I, am I actually helping? Am I actually making a difference? Uh, my support group is actually what just makes me feel validated because a lot of the times. It's like after an introduction, they'll share how long they've been in the group. And then it always ends with, you know, thanks to Erica. Like I have, mm, yeah. you know, I've been feeling better mm-hmm. or now I'm in this group or thanks to Erica. I got through this difficult time. Yeah. And so that's always like yeah. so validating yeah. for me. I was like, this is why like I we love don't know my what we do so for much. our clients um, <laughs> unless they say what we've done for them, you know? And, you know, that's not always the case that they're able to validate or identify the benefits from therapy. So it's like sometimes we're just left with our own imaginations of what kind of, you know, what kind of uh, quality of services that we're providing for our clients and patients. Yeah. And I think it's also important to note that yeah, not everybody is going to be the perfect fit. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that isn't talked about enough. And like, I, at least I don't know how like your relationship is with your coworkers, but uh, sometimes with my coworkers, we'll joke around and be like, well, not me specifically, but other coworkers yeah. will be like, oh yeah, my client fired oh, me. Yeah. And I would be like, I would be terrified. Like I would feel so bad, but then like they just take it with the grain of salt. It's like, yeah. no, yeah. I, I wasn't, it was, I wasn't the right fit for them. I was like, well, at least you understand right. that there's like right. no. I mean, I've fired my own feelings. therapist. I mean, there before, shouldn't you know, be, like years right? ago. So that that therapist was not a good for, for fit for me. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's so important to know that too. And I think it's also something that might discourage a lot of people. Like, if initially you find a therapist and it's not the right fit, it right. might make you feel like, oh, well, it's pointless then. Like, I should just right. not do it's this. Like- but in reality, it's like, mm-hmm. you just need to find the like right your one. dating therapist. So it might take a little bit not, of work. Not, but. not, uh, not, uh, um, what's the word? I can't think of the word. Not legitly. <laughs> you're not dating your therapist, <laughs> but you're. Right, right. Yes. Right, right. Right. We're but not, we're not talking right, about you're, unethical. You're figuring out what therapist <laughs> right is now. best for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And you said you fired your therapist. So do you feel like you had a struggle finding someone? Yeah, I feel like I've felt uh, you could relate to. I don't think it's been a struggle. I just think it's been a process of trying to find a therapist who works well with me and the issues that I present within a therapeutic setting. Um, And I've had, not that I bounce around from therapist to therapist, but I feel like I've, I've had to find different therapists uh, for different times in my life. Um, So not that I've, well, yeah, I I guess I would say that I've outgrown therapists in my past um, and found a therapist now who works well with me within this time of my life, within this period of my life, within this chapter of my life. Um, And in the future, I might have to find a different therapist who will work well with me for the next chapter of my life. Yeah, and I think that's so important, too, because, again, going back to the concept of, you know, (laughs) not every therapist is the right fit. But I think it's also the idea that not every therapist is the right fit for every stage of your life. And I think Mm -hmm. that's, again, that's another thing that, you know, nobody really talks about. And I think it's super important. But there can be a therapist that works well throughout your entire life. You know, it just varies. But like you were talking about earlier, it's like um, everybody's different. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, like my main struggle in finding a therapist, well, one, obviously money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think that's a lot of, you know, Mm -hmm. a big reason for why a lot of people don't seek out therapy. But for me, it's like, I know I was looking for somebody that I felt I could relate to that would really understand my culture, that would understand where my struggles are coming from. Yeah, totally. And, you know, that's kind of a tall order, too. (laughs) I was like, I need to find a Mexican therapist who might be a single child who, you know, has gone through all this stuff. It's like, that's not necessarily going to happen. But, you know, even Mm -hmm. just finding a therapist of color for me was was hard. and even now, like, I'm still debating whether mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. as comfortable as I'd like to be with my therapist. Yeah. Um, but, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm giving it a shot. Awesome. So, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, there was one more thing I wanted to ask you. Uh, because it's something that I've gone mm. through. And I'm going to call it, it's my parents' genes. Mm, and yeah, I, yeah. I actually <laughs> look quite young for my age. And so, <laughs> yeah. have you ever had that struggle? Because you, you do look pretty young. Like, have you ever had that struggle of having a client maybe just think you're too young or like you're not going to be able to do the work just because? Oh yeah, you know, quite a few times. Like yeah, you're absolutely. straight out of high school. Or um, one during internship was very blatant about his uh, about their um, uh, their dissatisfaction. I wouldn't say dissatisfaction, but their um, questionable. Uh, attitude towards me looking young and even said it during therapy like oh you look pretty young I don't know if you'll be able to uh, you know give me what I need within therapy but I'll give it a try and he gave it a try and it turned out to be a decent uh, therapeutic relationship but I feel like I I do get that um, uh, and have gotten that in the past of you look young what what kind of uh services can you provide for me? What kind of experience do you know about life? Um, and I, you know, I, I, I don't know if I've told you or not, but I do have one private practice client, um, not my own private practice, but a private practice that I work for. 
where it was brought up, my young parents, um, but we more so in the beginning of our therapeutic relationship. But uh, we ended up doing pretty good work together. Um, so it does come up. <laughs> yeah, I think for me, I don't think it's happened as much like being fully in the field. I'm pretty sure it happened a lot during my internship where like there were clients who were questioning my ability to help them and that kind of made my imposter syndrome kick up to like a thousand because it's like oh my god like what if they have a point what if they're right like what if I can't do this and it's like a spiraling thing um but for me specifically it's really funny because I don't I don't know if I would say if it was like my young appearance but I had a client um who was just so how do I say Mm, like she was just questioning everything and it came to a point where I kid you not Mm -hmm. she walked in sat (laughs) on my couch in my office took off her shoes Mm -hmm. pulled out Mm -hmm. a pen and paper so like like a notepad or something and started asking me about my credential (laughs) and I was I was like okay you know what I don't need this and specifically after like me trying to refer her out she's like I needed someone who's certified in trauma someone who's certified in trauma I'm like look I'm not certified in trauma I've done trauma work yeah like domestic violence in and of itself is trauma work but I was like you want something more specific I can refer you out but she was just so stuck on staying with me because I was the only person available right. and you know that's also an issue right. yeah totally. like the lack of accessibility to therapy but yeah I just I look back at that and I laugh I was like oh my god that's one thing I never thought I was going to experience one, one thing a peer has told me about uh specific clients who are like kind of like that uh um, questioning and just uncertain about the services that you provide. Uh, a parent told me <clears throat> that it's not necessarily about the clinician, but it's what the client is dealing with in their their own uh, projection, um, I guess, transference towards the therapist or the clinician uh, that hinders them from trusting their experience within the therapeutic relationship. Yeah, and I I think I agree with that. Um, So I I definitely think that it was a lot of projecting from the client herself, but because she did have a lot going on in her life. But, you know, I just think it's always funny, like, like I myself don't think I could ever see myself doing that to someone else. Again, never say never, right? Um, But it's funny because she called me afterwards and she's like, you know what? I gave it a thought and it's like, you know, the work we're doing, you know, is actually helping mm. me. So I don't, I don't think I need you to be certified <laughs> in trauma. I was like, so then what was that whole ordeal about? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, like therapy in itself is a, an experience. Are there any other things that you feel like, you know, need to be addressed around mental health and therapy, like specifically, you know, in, yeah, I think, in uh, our cities, like there Chicago, needs to be more mental like health services for uh, communities that don't have the um, resources, uh, more specifically for black and brown communities. I just feel like there needs to be more um, 
resources for marginalized communities to obtain mental health services to better serve that specific community. And I also think that there needs to be more uh, underrepresented underrepresented people within the professional field as well, more marginalized people within the professional mental health services field to better serve marginalized people. Uh, I just think there needs to be more diversity within the professional um, environment uh, so that we can better serve the people in our community. Oh, yeah, I think I think that's a huge thing. And like going back to like what I had mentioned earlier, like I was looking for Mm -hmm. a therapist that I felt I could relate to. You know, it's so important because, you know, specifically when it comes to like certain communities, like some people need like a specific language to speak in. So like when during my internship, like I I was they were trying to give me a client mm-hmm. whose main, whose primary language was Arabic. And so like their English was just very like right, choppy. Right. And I was like, there's mm-hmm. no way this is going to be effective. Like there's no way. Um, and like, instead of them giving me the Spanish speaking mm-hmm. clients, like I would get like <laughs> all of the English speaking clients. I was like, so then why am I here? <laughs> and like now, like I, nice like most of my Mm -hmm. caseload is Spanish speaking, but like I will hear clients be like, yeah, I've, I've struggled to find a therapist who spoke Spanish. And um, and, and and just in my experience, it's tough for me to find a gay therapist in a private practice setting. I don't have a gay therapist and I've been searching for one. Um, I've settled for the therapist who I have now because he works so well with me, but my intention was to find a, a gay male, uh, more, more specifically a gay male of color. And, you know, either the individual is booked or not taking any new clients. Um, so it's been it's been tough. But, uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm settling for the therapist I have now. We have a good relationship, um, but it's still uh, I still after working with this particular therapist for almost two years now, it's still tough to fully open up with him about the issues that I have. Um, because he's not a gay man. Um, and I, don't get me wrong, I still talk about uh, experiences within my own personal life. And he's still able to provide um, essentially the, the best that he can provide for me. But uh, um, I do find myself filtering a lot of the things that uh, I go through in order to uh, make things easier for him, I guess, which is probably not the best for me, but you know, it's, it's what I, it's what I'm dealt with right now. So I'm making it work. Yeah. And I think that's such an important point. And part of the reason why, you know, I was telling you that I was struggling as well, because sometimes you, the part that you need the most help with is the part Mm -hmm. that you don't Mm -hmm. feel your therapist can relate with. And again, no therapist is going to relate to you on a complete level, but, but, yeah, but sometimes yeah. like that yeah, one that piece you need is too. one piece that so they don't have. That. It's like not every therapist is going to meet all of our needs, um, which, you know, I have to be reminded of that. So good point. Yeah. yeah. But again, doesn't mean that there isn't somebody better out there. 
Um, it just goes to show that we need more representation within, within the field, more professional representation within the field. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I wholeheartedly agree with that. <laughs> Um, you can type in the the title of the books or my full name, um, Dundee, Gahildi. Uh, I mean, it's hard to spell, but uh, my first name is D-O-N-D-E-E. -E. Last name is G-U-J-I-L-D-E. Um, and if you type that into the search bar, you can find my books. Um, and then hopefully in the future, there'll be uh, another platform. But for now, they're just currently on Amazon. Which I think is great because who doesn't use Amazon today? Right. Yeah, I yeah. think last time we had talked about your planning on a new book. Uh, what it was to be a Filipino American as a child. Um, I'm in the process of finding an illustrator and finding an editor to edit my book. So <laughs> that's great. That's Thank exciting. You. I'm so happy. You're going to have four books out and it's going to be amazing. Yeah. Well, Danny, yeah, thank you thank so you. much. Thank you again I'm for so glad me. we were, were able it. to actually record this one. <laughs> Absolutely. Bye. All right. Take care.